Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The delicious conversation does start right here and right now. And so I welcome you to my kitchen. Whether you love to cook or love to eat, you are bound to find something you will love on this show. And I hope that you'll visit chefjamie.com where I am always serving up seconds. You can take your cooking skills to the next level though, just by staying tuned because it is my job to make you hungry and my goal to feed your soul. But I hope you'll also find delicious inspiration on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Chef Jamie Gwen, where I serve up my daily dish. Please become a friend and a fan. Every weekend, we heat it up in your radio with grand guests, chef's tips, and delicious inspiration to make your dishes come alive with flavor. And on this show, every food topic is on the table. So let me set a place for you because we have a big name with us today. Yes, he is sharing a life of gluttony, 40 years going strong. He is the New Yorker restaurant critic, much famed in New York, of course, Adam Platt, but known across the country for his adventures in eating. His irreverent memoir has just released, and oh, he's going to sit down and dish and just wait till you hear his stories. You won't want to miss it. Adam Platt in the house. Also, before the end of the hour, there's a new cookbook on the loose. It just released from the award-winning author of The Flavor Thesaurus. You know her name, Nikki Segnet. And the new book is being touted as a staggering achievement. We are cooking laterally later in the hour, and you're going to want to learn all about it. So please don't touch your dial because my goal is to satiate your appetite. And we'll kick off this show as we usually do with a tutorial of sorts, or at least a a craveable lesson, I'd like to say. So let me start with a story, if I may. As a little girl, my mom would take from the oven a heavy cast iron skillet with this glorious spectacle within, and I would ooh and ah in excitement. We call it the making of a chef. It it looked like a puffy crater with a sweet aroma, and it's called a Dutch baby, and it demands immediate before it deflates eating. She used to top it with sliced strawberries or a spoonful of blueberry jam, and she would make it snow with a shower of confectioner's sugar, and it holds a very dear place in my heart. And when the weather turns cold, I think about making a Dutch baby, maybe because it is my childhood and very comforting, or because it feels like a special breakfast, or because you need a holiday excuse to pull out all the stops. But no matter the reason, I think we should dish about it, because by the end of this tutorial, you will hopefully be running to the kitchen, pulling out the eggs and planning breakfast for breakfast, or breakfast for lunch, or maybe even breakfast for dinner. So even though it's called a pancake, this German version bears very little resemblance to the fluffy flapjacks that we're used to on this side of the Atlantic. German pancakes, or Dutch babies, are made of what is a non-leavened crepe-like batter. 
And often there's usually some sort of fruit. It's usually apples, but anything works. And it's cooked in a skillet. And um, then it rises, uh, finished at a, a high heat to bake it quickly. What you end up with is a smooth and custardy sort of clafouti-like pancake that is called a, often a German apple pancake, the caramelized fruit. And it's hard to beat, I have to say, as a really brilliant breakfast, as a very easy last-minute dessert. But my favorite is to serve it at brunch because everyone gathers in the kitchen and maybe they're holding a mimosa or sipping an espresso. And I like to pull it out of the oven and get those oohs and ahs that I remember giving my mom as a kid. I'll drizzle it with maple syrup. I'll put a crispy slab of smoky bacon on the side to modernize it. And brunch is ready. Now, it's an old recipe. um, And its history skews very, very sweet. The origin of a Dutch baby is Dutch. But the dish's popularity in America is due in part to Sunset Magazine articles that date back more than 50 years. So uh, thank you to Sunset Magazine for always being on the cutting edge. Most batters for a Dutch baby, by the way, use all milk, but sometimes I like to incorporate yogurt or Greek yogurt specifically, even sour cream into mine because I love the tang that offsets the sweetness and I love that rich flavor that comes through. Now, my batter ingredients come together in a blender. I love my appliances. You know that. And it really is very simple to make. It's like culinary science where you look like this great gastronomic hero, but you did very little work. So you pour this smooth blender batter into a hot buttered pan and the hotter the pan, the better. And it shimmers and it bubbles until the moment of liftoff. And then it starts to curl at the edges that rise above the rim of the pan. And it's accompanied by an occasional mogul at the center here or there. The Dutch baby, though, is very versatile. And you can keep it sweet or you can step towards savory. In other words, I say have your way with it. You could spice up the batter using pumpkin pie spice and infuse everyone's favorite seasonal addiction. You could use the pancake as a vessel for fresh vegetables or greens. You could melt thin rafts of cheese on it and cut it into snack wedges. There are but a few rules to keep in mind, though. The batter for a Dutch baby should be very well blended because any added bits have weight and they impede the rise. Also, the pan and the fat must be hot, 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 hot. And let me repeat, hot. Because that cast iron pan that my mom always used, I remember she heated in the oven as the oven came up to temperature. And that's really the secret here is that a a smoking hot pan creates the rise. Now, a Dutch baby is easy, as I said, but it's spectacular. And If you haven't made a Dutch baby in a while, or you've never made one before, or it is your masterpiece, it is time to rediscover the magic, don't you think? Or give it a go. So you want to use an oven-proof skillet or a pie plate, but a cast iron skillet is the best because it does get very hot and because it retains its heat. And the true secret to the ultimate Dutch baby, are you listening, is that the eggs need to be very close, if not at room temperature, 
in order to maximize their rise in the oven. So here is my best quick technique to master the German pancake. I take the eggs and I put them in a bowl of warm water from the sink for about five minutes. And it takes just about that long for them to come up to room temperature because I'm impatient or I might not have remembered and I didn't take them from the fridge early enough. Once you've left the eggs in warm tap water for five minutes, pull them out, dry them off, crack them and make your batter. And know that when you deliver a Dutch baby to the table, you are going to be a culinary hero. My mom was and still is because of her Dutch baby and for so many other reasons. And who doesn't want to be a gastronomic god or goddess now, really? I will gladly share my best Dutch baby recipe with you. It's a blender Dutch baby, as I call it. It's the bonus recipe this week. So please email me. You can email me if you just want a dish too. I'll share Thanksgiving recipes galore and holiday sweets inspiration. Uh, Just send me a note, jamie, J-A-M-I-E at chefjamie.com and we can dish about it. The Dutch baby recipe is yours. Okay, (laughs) let's talk about things more serious. Well, he's actually not serious at all. It's his jovial, beautiful humor And the fact that he has embraced a life of eating for a living 40 plus years now as a journalist and a highly lauded restaurant critic, Adam Platt is here and he's going to dish on a life of eating. Don't go away. Don't touch that dial. Oh, this is truly going to be scintillating conversation. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with lots more scrumptious goodness right after this. place for people who love to eat. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. When I say I have the best culinary thinkers on this show, I mean it. We have the best eaters too, by the way. And this gentleman, he holds the title. Adam Platt has been the chief restaurant critic and professional glutton in residence for New York Magazine since 2000. During the course of almost four decades in the magazine business, he has contributed to every elite publication as a writer and staffer from Newsweek to Esquire, Condé Nast Traveler to The New Yorker. He won the James Beard Foundation Journalism Award for Restaurant Reviews and his much-awaited memoir, 
has finally released. It is called The Book of Eating. It is a wonderfully hilarious, irreverent memoir of Adam's globe-trotting life lived meal to meal. It is filled with glorious stories of professional gluttony. And I will tell you, it is a must read for anyone who loves to cook or loves to eat. One of the most influential, respected food critics on the planet joins us today, and I am truly honored by his presence on this show. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Platt is here to dish, and I am very glad to have you, Mr. Platt. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jane. (laughs) Yes, of course, Adam. Uh, Okay, start at the beginning, if you would. As the son of a diplomat, you grew up experiencing great cuisine, and it it really molded your career. Uh, You know, it certainly molded my taste in food and my love of food Hmm. and, you know, my appreciation for the intermingling of food and culture. Hmm. Uh, You know, when I was very young, uh, my father was what's called a China specialist, so he he studied Chinese, and in the early 60s, uh, he took us to Taiwan, which is in those days, and I think still today, where... Uh, the government sends its people to study the Mandarin as a two-year course. They spend one year learning how to uh, talk, and the other year learning how to write. Mm. And uh, so, anyway, we were. I was an impressionable. I had two brothers. One of them was alive at that point. The other one was born later in Hong Kong, uh, when, where we went from Taiwan. And you know, com- coming from casserole, uh, you know, black and white culinary nightmare of North America into this sort of great, uh, vivid, uh, brightly colored uh, foodscape that was Taiwan in those days was really, you know, it was sort of a revelation for all of us. Oh, of course. It had to be quite something. I love the story of you and your brothers fighting over Peking duck on the table. The life of the privileged, uh, gilded, uh, you know, globetrotter. But the Peking duck, you know, Taiwan in those days, and this is this may be a little too uh, too much sort of inside baseball, but in those days, Taiwan in the sixties, it was the place where all of the great uh, all of the, the refugees from the great capitalist profession who had who had populated China, which was now in the throes of the communist revolution, and they, all these guys get kicked out, and they ended up in Taiwan, and many of them were world class cooks. Hmm. Uh, the inventor of General Tso's chicken. Uh, of course. You had, great, you had great chefs from all these different provinces. So in these towns, and this is our, we lived in a city called Taichung, which is actually a fairly big size, it was really a small city. You could really experience the glories of, you know, Sichuan cuisine and uh, Shanghai cuisine, and Peking dog, and a dish called Mongolian barbecue, which was a sort of a kind of uh, northern barbecue, uh, you know, with lamb and these sort of fresh-baked sesame seed buns. Mm. And so it was really every kind of dumpling you could imagine. So really for sort of a fat, hungry little kid <laughs> with a fat, hungry little brother, uh, you know, it was, a bit of, it was sort of a paradise. It, yes, I can imagine. And I do believe that it uh, set you on a path to becoming a food critic. The Four Seasons Grill Room has a rich place in your heart. It does mine as well. On early trips to New York, uh, I remember going there. That was a an extraordinary special occasion. And right. you, you tell the story of uh, the experience there really standing out. Yeah. 
Well, I was uh, I, I wrote about many different things. Yes. Uh, before I was a, became a restaurant critic, and the first time I went to the the, the grill room, uh, I was a you know a, a, a minor a writer at Newsweek magazine, which had their offices nearby. Mm. Um, and I used to go there. I also did a profile of, of Philip Johnson, who was a great architect, who designed this space. And, it, and if, for those of you who don't know, it, it still exists, actually, because it's been landmarked. It's just occupied by a different restaurant called The Grill. Right. And it's this beautiful cathedral, uh, as you know, this sort of cathedral monument. Yes. Oh, to, it's so gorgeous. Uh, to, to, to sort of modernist skyscraper, mid-20th century New York. And uh, in those days, uh, in those days of, you know, have, have, have passed, it was, it was where all of the, the, the suited, harumphing power brokers of the city hmm. sort of sat in their usual banquette, you know, like, a, like walruses on a rock, I think <laughs> was my description in the book. Yes. And, you know, it was very much like, like any great restaurant in any great city during various times, it was a reflection of the culture. Hmm. Uh, and you know, not 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 you know, in many many ways, not a great reflection. I mean, that that, that day of the martini lunch, and you know, the old male power broker has passed away, but it was a very sort of vivid, um, uh, you know, it, it was just a very sort of vivid celebratory place, yes. especially in its heyday. Yes, and I think it's still thought of as that in all of its reincarnate. It, it still is. Yeah, yes, it still is. I. It's still, it's it feels gilded to me, Adam. Like, I feel like I'm with the gold sheath down the windows. Uh, I, I feel like you're sitting in opulence. It's just... You feel, yeah, you feel like you're in New York. Yes, you know? you it's extraordinary. Like, and, you're not, and you're not just sitting there at the Empire State Building or whatever one does <laughs> when one tries to sort of breathe in right. the culture of the city. Yes. You're actually enjoying a good meal. And you're watching New Yorkers come. come come and go. It's really an advertisement. Like like I say, like all of these great restaurants all over the world, it's really an advertisement. Uh, it's sort of a piece of lived anthropology, and it's a way to commune yes. you know, with, a, with a sort of a certain time and a place, which is in a lot of ways much more interesting, I've always thought, than going to a museum or going to see a, hmm. a, you know, a sort of a building or something like that. Yes, and that's the reason we are so grateful that you've come to write about restaurants for all these years, because you've put your finger on the pulse of that feeling that that experience conjures up. Okay, Adam, if you'd please pause there, we need to take a quick break. We are dishing with one of the most influential and respected food critics on the planet. More with Adam Platt right after this.
And so the conversation continues. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with my illustrious guest, Adam Platt, the life of a food critic. Over four decades, Adam Platt has reviewed restaurants for the likes of Every Glorious Magazine, and his memoir has just released, entitled The Book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony. Adam is here, and he's telling his stories. I love the stories in the book. Um, I think you very proudly, I would venture to say, um, got kicked out of a Mario Carbone restaurant back in the day. Did you not? That's correct. Yes, yeah. I did. Yes. And, uh, and, would you like to hear that story? I, I most certainly much. would love to well, again, well, yes. Yeah, and, this, and this thing, I think I say this in the book, is that as a, as a restaurant critic, uh, you know, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. You know, I, I say in the book that there's this whole, certainly in a place like New York, and I think many, many cities, L.A., Chicago, there's a sort of a kabuki dance which goes on between the restaurant critics, the people who review the restaurants, and the owners of the restaurants. And it's all, there are all these unseen, unwritten, you know, codes that one abides by. They pretend not to know you're there. Uh, you use a, a fake name and in some strange cases even disguises to disguise yourself even though they know exactly where you're sitting, especially... Uh, in a place like New York, where there's so much money at stake that they make their, you know, they, they make it their business to know who you are, especially early on when a restaurant uh, opening. Anyway, and they don't complain generally when you say bad things about the restaurant. And, 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 and of course, the rationale behind that is that you know you're there for a long time. Hopefully, the restaurant tours are there for a long time. And you're good for business, ultimately. And so they don't want to piss everybody off. Right. Doesn't that fall However, under any publicity is good publicity? I think so. But, I, you know, listen, if I were running a restaurant, and it's a very passionate, I mean, it's like producing a play. It's, it's, it's like, a, you know, a, a work of art. It's, it's, they're putting their, 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 their body and their soul and their reputation online. Mm. And then you have these overfed characters, you know, waddling in and, they go to five restaurants a week, and their palates are, you know, burnt to a crisp. And really, what do, what, what do they know? And this is privately, I think, what my chefs think of critics. And it's actually, I'm not going to say it's the truth, but you, you can't blame them for thinking that. Anyway, what happened in this, this is a very small, quite a precious little restaurant. Uh, the chef who met Marisol, and there's, there are actually two chefs. Uh, I had given a bad or at least, or a not not so flattering review to their previous restaurant, which is called Carbone, which is everybody loved, and frankly, everybody still loves, and actually, I sort of like now. Oh, and now I, and I love it for the record. And you love it. I do. The, it's actually their best restaurant. Actually. Yes. Anyway, and I've made amends a little bit, but whatever. And I, that, that was my snapshot. <laughs> that was my my sort of subjective view of, the, of that of that restaurant at that time and place. And I always say that that's all a critic can do. Yes. If you know, take the scene in, make an argument, make an argument, make sure everybody knows it's your view, your opinion. There's I agree. Nothing, not, there's nothing more subjective than eating and then or dining at a restaurant. You know, every, everything can change depending on where you sit, depending <laughs> on what time of day it is, depending on what kind of food you like. Anyway, I, I say all this. Anyway, they took issue to my um, Carbone review, so I show up randomly at this new restaurant. And uh, within 20 minutes, a, a, a giant bouncer figure looms <laughs> up at our table and says, you know, you're done here, you know, in this flat bouncer voice. And I actually, 
my guest was horrified. I was actually not that horrified because I knew they would make a good story down the road. So I kept saying, are you sure you're, you're kicking me out? Are you sure you're kicking me out? And they said, he kept on saying, you're done here, and you're done here, you know, you're done here. And then I said, I want to pay because, of course, as a critic, the fact that you're paying for your meal is really the one thing that you have that sort of keeps you from being, uh, you know, a, a publicity agent. Yes. Right? It's, it, it's, your, it's the sign of your independence. So I kept asking to pay, and they said they were on it. Yeah, this is on us. And meanwhile, the whole room was very small, small silent. The part, you know, it was like, a, I think in the book I describe it like a, a Western, a gun, a, the prelude to a gun battle in a Western uh, saloon. Yes, and you, know, you, get the, you get the feeling that everyone's watching you. Everyone's watching you. It's like the, you know, the, the jungle falls quiet. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the lion you know, roars. The lie, whatever. There, you know, and so we just, you know, we left, and that was that. So, yeah. That was the beginning. It's never happened again. And, uh, you know, it makes a good story. It's a brilliant story, actually. And, and, of course, and, of course, when I review their next restaurant, everybody's happy, everybody's fine. How are you doing? Right. Names, the lesson, life goes on. My, yeah, they call me by my full, false name. <laughs> you know, I, I actually give them a good review, a couple of good reviews. I mean, it's just a, in, and life in the jungle, uh, you know, the kabuki dance continues. Continues. Do you think you have the best job? Uh, well, I say that the, the book is much, very much about this, right? Yes. Uh, I think it's a, a wonderful job, especially in a place like New York City, where food and culture and the sort of theatricality of the dining, uh, mm. you know, the dining culture is so, you know, everything's so intertwined together and everything changes all the time. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful way to follow life in the city. Um, and I maintain that I think New York is still the, it's, it's sort of the best dining town. I, yeah, yeah, I think actually in the world, there are wonderful places to eat, but the dining culture here is so deep that it is a very, it, it, it's a great way to, to sort of follow, follow the city. On the other hand, um, it's a job. Most of the restaurants, I mean, you know this, most of the restaurants that you go to aren't great restaurants. Hmm. Some are horrible restaurants. Most of them are middle-of-the-road restaurants. You're going out four or five nights a week. Uh, you develop all kinds of health problems, which in my case, you know, I've developed, you know, high cholesterol, high blood sugar. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I compare the job as far as mortality rate <laughs> may, may, may or may not be true to sort of being a coal miner or a fisherman. You know, I have many uh, colleagues who have succumbed to the rigors of stuffing their faces night after night, decade after decade. Right. Uh, so in that case, it really is a job. And it's not uh, for the faint of heart. No, not at all. You talk about dieting meditations because... Dieting, you know, yes. diet. It's very hard to diet when your job is to eat. So I'm always battling that, that situation. Uh, I can empathize know. and sympathize, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Yes. You know, I, send, you know, I, I think I describe in the book my girls. I have two little girls. They're not that small anymore. But their, their experience, and they go out to restaurants sometimes, although you may know this also, if you keep inviting friends out to restaurants, they sort of get tired of it after a while. They're always saying, well, can we go to a better restaurant next time? <laughs> and my, my girls are like that, too. And their experience is me. They come home after school, and their dad is lying on the couch, you know, right. burping from some crazy thing he's eaten the night before. And then he gets up at five and staggers out into the darkness. and Does it again. <laughs> 
yeah, their experience is they don't really see the glamorous side of it. No. Although it is, it, it jobs go, and also writing jobs. They've had many different writing jobs. But writing jobs go, it, it, it's, it's a great one because food is evocative. Yes. Fun to write about it, and, and people can relate about re- relate to what you're saying because everybody has their own opinions. Everybody has their favorite Proustian hmm. food that they want to talk about, and it's really a very evocative subject. Yes, that it is, and you have written it and shared it and memorialized it beautifully. I have oh, long I followed your work. I love that you've raised two girls who love pizza. Uh, <laughs> it seems just so. So ironic to me. And if you're looking for a new friend, Adam, and a guinea pig, I'm raising my hand. All right. Anytime when you come to town. I'm always looking for volunteers. Nobody wants to eat me with me anymore. Well, uh, all of my friends listening are are now going to offer themselves up, I will will say. Um, They are a bunch of me. I got a bunch of mediocre restaurants I want to take you to. Oh, I can't wait. There are um, so many glorious stories of your four decades in the business. And for the food lover and the connoisseur, um, for the novice, uh, for anyone looking to better understand um, the life of one who eats to live and lives to eat, uh, you have done it beautifully. Many years in the making, I know. We are grateful uh, that the book of eating has just released Adventures in Professional Gluttony from Adam Platt. It is available now. You can follow Adam at Platty Pants, of which that's I do. Me. Adam, that's you. P L A T T Y P A N T S. The Life of a Professional Glutton in words. Really brilliant. Adam, thank you for coming on the show. I can't thank you enough, and I hope to see you in New York soon. Thanks a lot, Damien. Anytime. Please. Well, thank you. you. and your friends, raise your hand. We'll go out. Mediocre restaurant. We'll take me, take we'll me. See. We'll see what we're made of. I can't, can't wait. Uh, right. there, lot, thank you so much. There is lots more delicious conversation in your radio. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Sharpen your cooking skills and please your palate every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. When I say we have the greatest culinary thinkers on this show, I mean it. There is a new cookbook on the loose just released from the very award-winning author of The Flavor Thesaurus, and it's being touted as a staggering achievement. Nikki Segnet used to follow recipes to the letter, even when she'd made a dish a dozen times, but she tested the combinations for pairing flavor in her first groundbreaking book, and she detected the basic rubrics that underpinned most recipes. And so she wrote Lateral Cooking, offering us formulas to become more intuitive, instinctive chefs and cooks. 
The book is divided into chapters where each covers a basic culinary category like bread or stock. And then the recipes in each chapter are arranged on a a continuum, passing one to another with just a tweak or two to the method or ingredients. It's brilliant, right? Once you've got the hang of flatbreads, then crackers or soda bread or scones involve just an adjustment. So here to elevate our skills and share her culinary prowess is the much acclaimed Nikki Segnit, the encyclopedia, a Bible that will become your best friend. Lateral cooking has just released and it is all a buzz. Nikki, I am very grateful to have you here. Congratulations. This is 609 pages of the most extraordinary wisdom. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> 609 pages it sounds uh it sounds kind of scary doesn't it no but it does but when you open it and you start to read like I couldn't decide whether to go to the kitchen or lay down on the couch uh well that I'm afraid is my uh that's my trick yeah. I think that um these days when you go if you're trying to teach somebody something when they have to read it you have to make that reading good reading you have to make mm-hmm. it very entertaining and uh, I get very into the writing side of uh, both flavor stories and natural cooking because I just think I imagine myself sitting in the kitchen talking to one of my many friends who likes to cook and we're very honest about it and we have a good laugh about it and mm. you know we know you know we know quite a lot about um, all sorts of ins and outs of of making a meal so I want to write it like that I want to write instruction but in a night nice, couched in a kind of interesting jolly, um, yeah, conversational tone. Yes, and it comes across beautifully that way. Uh, Lateral cooking is getting so much acclaim for encouraging improvisation. So I wonder, after all these years of following a recipe, like so many of us do, do you cook by heart more so today? Absolutely. So, I mean, this writing this book completely changed my cooking. So I was a, I mean, I would say like I was a Stepford cook. I just used to completely follow the rules and follow the recipes. If it said, fill up a teaspoon of water, I would actually start again if I dripped a bit of water out. So, I mean, I was so slavish to recipes. And then when I was writing the Flavor Thesaurus and I had to try lots and lots of different flavor combinations together and they didn't necessarily come with recipes, then I had to start adapting. And when I started adapting... After a while, I thought, well, this would be just, my God, I, what I need is a book that just gives me like skeletons of recipes. Just mm. like, here are the basic ideas, and then I could go and apply my ingredient combinations to them. But I looked for that book, and it didn't exist. So I just started keeping lots of notes to the same end, just saying like, well, if you're making an ice cream, here's the basics, and here's the things that you can do. And if it's citrus, then watch out for this, and you know, that kind of thing. And after a while, I just found myself using those notes so much. And then in my just in my regular days, because obviously a lot of what we do cook tends to be fairly kind of classic stuff, or certainly does for me. You know, I might be making an ice cream or some bread or some biscuits and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so I would probably say nine out of ten things I cook, I now cook with that recipe. Nikki Segnit's first book, The Flavor Thesaurus, won the Andre Simon Award for Best Food Book. Uh, she has won many glorified awards, I will say, um, and deservedly so. The new release, called Lateral Cooking, is a practical book all about the art and science 
of great food, but it draws on history and ideas from professional kitchens, and it will inspire you to cook. It will teach you that you can cook by heart. And the book is available on Amazon, being touted as this year's greatest success and in fine bookstores around the world, translated into, I think, eight plus languages, Nikki, already. Congratulations to you. Yes, well-deserved. Um, I hope to see you in London on my next trip. Come and visit me. I, w- I would love it. And uh, again, find me. well, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you for having me. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary nirvana. I hope that you found something delicious in the conversation, that I fed your soul or inspired you to do something delicious this week in the kitchen. If you're hungry for more, please visit chefjamie.com. And become a friend and a fan on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, where you'll find my daily dish of inspiration at Chef Jamie Gwen. But don't go yet. Let me leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of culinary conversation. There is stuffing in your future. Oh, yes, I can't wait. The big feast is soon. Or maybe you're baking apple pies. And I have an easy way to keep apples from browning. No lemon? No problem. Fresh, beautiful, crisp apples of the season, perfect for baking, right? Or that afternoon snack. But there is always one thing inevitable. They start to brown immediately and it's not appetizing at all. And while you can dunk them in a lemon solution, the well-known method for preventing apples from browning, I have another hack that I think keeps them even fresher. So if you don't want that tart flavor to your sweet apple... I soak apple slices in seltzer water to keep them from browning. It's really an effective way to prevent oxidation. And you just submerge them for five or 10 minutes or so. And in order to keep the apple slices from floating, I cover the bowl with a a paper towel and it weighs them down. Now, I've put the theory to the test. And I will tell you, uh, versus the lemon water, the seltzer-soaked apple slices stayed white longer. And so you will have beautiful apple pie or set them on a grazing board and walk away with peace of mind. And in your stuffing, oh, they will highlight the goodness. It's a pretty great tip, I think. And I'll share it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so you don't forget. I'll also meet you here next weekend when there is lots more fabulous food guaranteed in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. Don't forget to come cruise with me August of next year, 2020, as we embark on an Alaskan vacation of a lifetime on board Oceana Cruises. Yes, I am the featured chef, and I hope you'll take a private cooking class with me. Learn more at chefjamie.com, and I'll meet you here next weekend. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.